Welcome to the Painless Brandcast. That's right. This special Painless podcast is focused specifically on brand marketing from the brand perspective. Today's guest will be John Lewicki, head of global partnerships for McDonald's Corp. And you'll quickly hear he's a terrific guest, insightful, honest, funny, whip smart. John shares with us some wisdom gained from being in sports marketing since it basically came into existence in the 80s. John's done deals with just about everyone from the Olympics to FIFA and name any major U.S. sports league he's worked with them. You'll also quickly note a third voice, Kevin Adler, marketing expert, painless member, and good friend. I asked Kevin to co-host with me, and uh, hence the third voice. Kevin's the founder of and uh, chief engagement officer for Engage Marketing in Chicago, nationally recognized expert in sports marketing and consumer engagement. We are breaking this uh, podcast into two parts. You're listening to part one. Here we're covering John's background, some important mentors, other great stories, some negotiating advice that John has to share, uh, establishing McDonald's sponsorship objectives and and measuring uh, and how well he's accomplishing all that uh, at such a big company as McDonald's. And then in part two, we're going to cover some agency do's and don'ts, some tips from John, uh, as well as discuss uh, taking care of internal audiences in particular, kind of a case study of the McDonald's crew members earning winning trips to uh, places such as the Olympics and uh, some interesting stories from Super Bowls, as well as um, ownable assets like next week's McDonald's High School All-America game coming to Chicago's United Center. But without further ado, here now is part one recorded March 21st at McDonald's headquarters in Oak Brook. Let's get connected with John Lewicki. Hello and welcome to the Painless Podcast. Today we call it the Painless Brandcast. We're meeting with a with a brand expert in John Lewicki, the current head of global alliances at McDonald's Corporation. Welcome, John Lewicki. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, uh, that's very nice of you. The uh, first question we like to, to start off with, get to know uh, each of the guests on the podcast is, where do you come from? Where did you grow up? It tends to shape people. Sure. Oh, I grew up in New England and uh, actually grew up in Connecticut. So it shaped me in a way as typical uh, New Englanders and Northeasters. We were very uh, insular in our approach to life. Um, but uh, really kind of expanded out there, got good uh, traditional roots from back east in both Connecticut and Massachusetts, actually, um, and then kind of ventured out from there, went uh, from one coast to the other, moved from, uh, after being on the east coast my entire life, moved out to the west coast, lived in uh, San Diego for a couple years, and then uh, just for giggles, ended up in the middle of the country in Chicago. Just for giggles. <laughs> Now, did you, it was a, a school or a job that took you out? It was West a job Coast. that took me out to the West Coast. Actually, the first job that really got me into sports marketing. Um, you know, when I uh, grew up in New England, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I say this to your audience, but I'm old. And <laughs> so when I got into sports marketing, there was no such thing as sports marketing. So you, now you see there are, there, are, there are undergraduate degrees in sports marketing and graduate degrees in sports marketing. When, when I went through school, there was no such thing. 
And I actually came out of college and worked for Kraft Foods and then went into the brand side as a traditional marketer and then uh, actually ended up at um, uh, Avis Renicar for a number of years doing some of their brand marketing. And through one of my programs, I, ha- I managed all of their travel portfolios for their airlines and hotels. And trying to do a program, we got involved in uh, a joint program with American Airlines and Sheridan Hotels. And in order to do that, both American and Sheridan had uh, a relationship with the MBA. So we had a former relationship with the MBA. And we didn't know anything about it, so we signed this deal for three years. And we only wanted to do one promotion with it. And so after the promotion was over, um, they came to say, well, who's going to manage the relationship? And the the company came to me and said, well, who's going to manage it? And I said, well, I, I don't want to manage it. And they said, well, it was your program. You put it together. You manage it. And so that's how I got into sports marketing. It was managing. You're saying that... Somebody did a deal in sports marketing without a long tail view for how they were going to use the yeah, process. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Well, that never happens. Never happens. It was. It was. It seemed like it was unique at that time, but uh, apparently not so much. So that, and then we kind of jumped into an NFL, and I got I, I handled that, and then I met a bunch of people through that, um, through those relationships, and ended up moving out to California to work for the Upper Deck Company, and running their corporate programs. Uh, so that's kind of the first foray into sports marketing um, and working with multiple brands on the side of the authenticated division and the trading card division, and ultimately how I came to McDonald's. We did uh, the trading card programs for McDonald's back in the day with uh, their NBA programs and their NFL programs. So I met McDonald's that way, and and then they they were building out a sports marketing group, and they brought me on to to do some of that. So you had mentioned, and you know, it's a I'm coming from slightly younger than you, but that generation where there weren't sports marketing um, and really brand marketing programs in college at that point, is that something you were shooting for? Is that how you gravitated towards it professionally? Because you know you could raise your hand and say, "Oh, I, well, I can know enough. I can figure this out." I mean, like, yeah, no. <laughs> the, uh, um, I truly wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but what I was focused on, and what I did do a lot of, uh, of of work with within even the brand marketing aspect, was negotiations. So that was more the impetus for me in getting into it because these became true negotiations as opposed to some of the stuff I was doing on the brand side. So that was more of the expertise that I brought to the, to it when I got involved in it and kind of gravitated that I was helping in the negotiations on the contracts. And so that was more having uh, done a lot with um, business law when I was in school. You know, that always intrigued me in that aspect of it. So um, this really was, you know, the, the, the best way to get to pretend to be a lawyer at work without really being one. <laughs> So let me ask a related question. We talk a little bit about having a brand marketing background as the foundation for what ultimately became a career in sports marketing. We talk about how now there are specialties in undergrad and graduate school in sports marketing. I think that to some degree there's a disconnect between people who are siloed sports marketers uh, who maybe don't have that brand background as a framework for the work they do, right? And I think sometimes that work can become very tactical and lose sight of the broader implications for the brand. Do you think having a brand, a traditional brand management background 
A, was helpful for you, and B, is something that folks should consider as they're shaping their careers, even if they ultimately want to be a sports marketer? Yeah, you know, so it's a great question, and, and it, it kind of it circles about to what you want to be in sports, you know, and so now the opportunities, there are multiple opportunities, whether it's a team level, the property level, the agency level, the event level, or the brand side. Um, I would argue that if you are going to look to be on the brand side, then having that brand background is is instrumental. Um, and part of that is because everything I do and everything I would uh, would guess any person on the brand side would need to do, even though it's sports marketing, it has to be brand-led. You're, 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 you have to come in with an objectiveness of what you're doing for the brand and how the sports or entertainment will help that. So you have to have that ability to be able to draw the two together. If I was just um, involved in negotiating contracts, I could be de- doing that on uh, on another side of the business. But having the look of what, um, what and how the properties are going to help the brand is really key and instrumental to it. Would you say that same advice applies to agency folks who ultimately want to service the brand community in terms of not only coming up in some level through a brand background or getting a brand framework, but also while they're servicing brands on the agency side, obviously not losing sight of the fact that all this work is in service of a brand. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, it's a, I, I would say it's imperative that you have to have some kind of familiarity with it, or how can you represent a brand or work for a brand if you don't understand that side of the business? So the best agencies out there are those, those that have that experience and can relate and almost become a surrogate to the, 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 the company and the brand. Because you see, we're, we're, we're fairly unique. There aren't a whole lot of brand sides direct sports marketers. They are more on the agency side. So you are seeing more of that crossover. And I think people, it's an easier place to gravitate and and find, uh, you know, the opportunities as opposed to, because a lot of companies don't necessarily want the overhead for just a sports marketer. Right. No, that's very true. In coming along early on, you know, how did you identify your either you know strengths that you you know you seem to gravitate the negotiation piece and all how did you identify strengths and it's harder to identify probably weaknesses like what did you think you had to work on or know that you had to work on to be to be able to to rise up and you know take on these larger and larger projects is you know think of, of back to you know mid 20s uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm still working on some yeah, of that right. stuff. Uh, you know, it, it, again, the, I think the the where my strengths lie, we're in that negotiation space, and and being able to identify from a strategic standpoint uh, some of the opportunities, how they work together, and how they would fit, and the pieces that would fit within the brand aspect. The things that to this day that I'm still working on are are some of the detail uh, aspects of it and some of the communication aspects of it. Um, you know, we sometimes get lost in the fact that it's in my head and I, I know about it, but uh, doesn't necessarily mean anybody else knows about it. So it's 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 continuing to work on, and I, I I think I will always continue to work on that and figure out the best way of communication. And everybody receives communication differently, so you're always adjusting to that. And that's that's one of my uh, you know one of the things that I continue to work. On, um, you know, it's an, an interesting going back to the negotiation aspect of it as well. Um, after doing it for the length of time I've done it, and I don't know if this is a good, good or bad thing <laughs> with the uh, with the reputation I have. You know, sometimes I don't even get into negotiations. It's just you know, here's here's what it is, what and it is. and and then sometimes you know, I, and again, it's it's been a long, strange journey that I've negotiated for literally weeks at a time. For five hundred dollars, 
you know, just a difference in, in a fee of $500. And then, you know, then at the same time, you know, you could uh, could do a negotiation in a day for millions of dollars. And it's so it's really all what's on the other side of the table and, and where you're at. And I think we as uh, as as the 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 sponsors are sometimes afraid of having open dialogue about the deals we've done because we don't really want to know if we did a bad deal. Right. So right. you know, don't don't necessarily get too much information out. Just keep the insular that oh yeah, well, my deal was the best one when uh, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You know, you obviously had some innate abilities and talent with that. Uh, you know, but you you've, I'm sure you've had some mentors and advisors along the way, people you've looked up to, learned from. How did you find those folks? Who, who were those people on the way? Was it people that you worked for? Or were you looking at people outside of where you were working? So going back to college, my the, the, the one mentor and the one person I remember the most, and I don't remember a lot from college, <laughs> but the one person I remember the most was a, a, an interesting individual. He's, he was an economics professor, and his name was Michael Maripool. And, you know, if I could reach out to him at some point uh, today, I would. And he had a fascinating story. First of all, he made economics interesting. Um, but he also talked about the side of how, and, and it wasn't necessary negotiation, but the aspect of economics and, and, and the financial of, of the, 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 the give and take and, and, and how the economies work. Um, but even a broader fascination to me about him learning after the fact is he was Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's son. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, learning he and his brother, both highly educated, highly successful professors at universities, and just his approach to everything was was unique to me, and, and, and understanding that where he came from um, was fascinating to me. So he was kind of the first first peg that, that got me interested in, in, in that, just dealing with people and, and, and understanding the, 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 the ups and downs of things. I then had a, uh, you know, I then look at, it really kind of forged my own path, dealt with some people, kind of stumbled through it, because I didn't, you know, starting out, didn't really know what I was doing, uh, and someone would negotiate with me and they'd say, okay. I go, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Should have done better. Um, so you learn that process and then uh, got interested in it and then started taking a bunch of uh, offline, uh, at that time offline, but just classes on, on negotiating, negotiating skills and trying to figure out how to, what are the best tactics and what are the best opportunities and how, what are the things you look for. Um, and I remember once uh, uh, my wife and I were uh, fairly newly married and I had gone through this negotiating skills class and um, it, one of the things was about a, a, a retail, you know, how you go buy suits at retail. Uh, it was one of the examples. So it just so happened that we went and bought a suit and as, you know, the the, the the, the model uh, in the in the class was that once they've tailored your suit, then you throw out and say, well, how many shirts do I get with this? Um, and so I go and do it. So I literally went and tried on a suit, and they've got it hemmed up and everything. And then I'd look at the guy, the tailor. So, so okay, how many shirts? How many shirts do I get with this? He goes, "You can have as many as you want, as long as you buy them." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, "Well, that didn't work." And out. that guy now works for the NFL. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, probably. Um, but it was just so that was that course. And then really, uh, you know, when I came to McDonald's, um, you know, one of the, uh, the one of the gentlemen that he's retired a couple years ago that I worked for. Um, uh, named Dean Barrett, and he was he was instrumental in just watching him 
his approach to things. And you know, it, it was never a sit down and here's what you do. It was just observing how he did things and his approach. And I, I would say, and, and I'd say this to his face, 80% of it was positive, 20% wasn't, but it was learning both aspects of it and see, okay, that's what I want to do, and no, I don't want to do that. So uh, he, that, was a, that was a big help to help shape me, certainly in my career at McDonald's since he was at McDonald's. So while we're on this topic and you're talking about your primary skill set as a negotiator, big picture question. What do you think makes for a successful negotiation when the smoke clears, and what do you think makes someone a good negotiator? So, you know, one of the things I've always learned is, you know, it's that, and, and anybody who's taken any kind of negotiating one-on-one is, you know, to get to win-win. Um, and it really is going into it with what are my objectives and where do I want to get? Um, and knowing, hopefully, that the person on the other side is doing the same thing. And if you can both walk in, and one of the things that I'm, I, I guess, most proud of in, in all of my negotiations, and again, I say this from my perspective, the people on the other side of the table may disagree with me, um, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, there are some people who just come in and negotiate and then walk away and don't, aren't involved in the business. My job has always been to negotiate and then manage the relationship. And in order to go through a, again, what I'm proud of, to be able to go through a difficult negotiation but still be able to manage and have a working relationship after that means that we may not have always gotten to a win-win. It may have been a win-lose or a lose-win, but we're, you know, 90% of the time is we're, we're feeling good about it and, we're, and we can continue that relationship and partnership. There's, there's not one that I can remember that I could not, after the negotiation, and, and some of them were nasty, um, some of them names were called, um, <laughs> but didn't wouldn't weren't that's that's what we had to do. That's business, and now we move on. Now let's get let's get the programs going and working on it. Oh yeah, well I think that would actually be a for people who don't do that to have to go through that at least one or two times would probably dramatically change the way they negotiate in in a positive way because or at least of certainly working towards the win-win right yeah, yeah you know and, and there there is some and you see it uh, uh, in a lot of companies they'll, they'll have a business affairs person or a, a someone a legal person come in and do the negotiation who's not involved in managing the relationship so it's so that you know you may push a little harder on that front and I think there are buttons you can push and the, and, the, and you can make it difficult it's just being able to find that way to bring it back to where it's civil and, and you got to, now you've, you, you, that, that's a side, you're moving forward and, and, and we can go. And I think you bring up a really important point and I want to make sure, especially that our younger listeners really kind of hear and get this point. You can, I could take my 12 year old daughter and put her on the phone and give her a budget and she can buy something. Sure. The, the, act, the action of buying something with a budget is, is not necessarily a talent any more than the action of handing somebody a prepackaged set of assets for a fixed price is a talent. The essence, I think, what you're saying of a really successful negotiation in our space is the idea of both parties starting out with a commitment to understanding each other's objectives, each mm -hmm. other's objectives. It's not a, I'm going to sell you something and you're going to buy it from me dynamic. It's a, what are you trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish? Where are our common interests and how can we get there together? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I've been in negotiations where, uh, unfortunately, the other side is just selling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and not listening to and I've spoke at this at nauseum. Not listening to what we're trying to accomplish or what we need. It's just I have inventory to sell and I want you to buy it. So that's why I'm here. So 
I know you're historically not shy about talking about properties that don't get it, but let me spin that around. Are there properties that you think in this current environment do a particularly good job of taking that collaborative win-win approach, consultative sales approach, how do we understand each other's objectives up front and then land at a solution together versus the traditional, I'm here to sell you a bunch of inventory? Um, I, I think they're getting there. I think they're, they're for the most part, all of them are getting there. Uh, it's it's going to be a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a learning curve. I think you start at the property level, the, the national property or global property level, they're much more advanced in that. I think the teams still have some work to do in, in that aspect. And, you know, there, there, there are all sorts of pressures, obviously, from a financial standpoint as the, the salaries get crazy. So uh, you, you sort of understand their, their position. They've got, the, they've got to get this in. But they're, they're, they're coming around. It's, it's, uh, I don't want to say they've become professionalized, but they've brought marketers in as a to salespeople, and it makes a huge so, difference. Yeah, so they're they're you're seeing a, a little bit more of that, uh, and it is they're understanding the benefit of what everybody does. You know, because we're all at different levels of of maturation from a brand standpoint and what our needs are. Um, so there are people out there who just need name recognition, and you know, they, they the dasher boards or the signage in stadium is is wonderful, and that's that inventory. There are others that need promotional help. There are others that need credibility associated with the third party. So it's whatever, as long as they start to understand that everyone's a little different, and I always got a kick out of this, and I may be by myself on this, <laughs> but um, you know, when people start talking about an industry ROI, how do we put an ROI against the sponsorship? I still am a, a, an advocate that you can't, because everybody's different. Everybody's measuring different and, and what they need to accomplish because as for as many people as mature as, as our brand is that we don't need name recognition, there are just as many who do. So we can't measure things the same way. Um, so it's it's getting more professional. Um, it's getting more business-like and, 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 and what I call true partnership-like. You're, you're finding that aspect that we're no longer, you know, and I always, the, the vernacular's changed, but, you know, we're partners. And that's the way I've always approached it, that we need to be partners. I'm not paying you to promote you. We're getting in, in, in association together to, for you to help me and me help you. And that sometimes that scale gets tipped uh, on a little bit to who's helping who more. But you know, in the in the long run, it sh you should try to equate out to a 50-50 percent of, of of balancing. And, and just to be clear, for any of our brand side listeners who maybe are not yet in the life cycle of their brand as committed to sponsorships as as John and McDonald's are, John is not saying that sponsorships cannot be measured. What he is saying is that you need to measure them vertically specific to your business and your business objectives. Absolutely. How much of of the deals you're looking at, how much of it's is there much right now inbound? Yeah, I, I, for us, you know, I guess uh, I would say I've been fortunate. It's uh, it's always been outbound, so it's always things that we we've been looking for and how to associate. Where we rarely will do anything, and well, we don't do anything inbound. Um, so and we'll now start developing more of a, a strategy as, as we are where we are as a brand and the, some of the things we're doing and some of the ways we're associating and, and some of the different business challenges and initiatives we have. We have to start looking at things a little differently and how, how we're in, get involved with them, how we engage with them. You know, the whole social dynamic uh, uh, platforms have changed drastically. The digital aspect has changed it drastically. Um, so we have to 
take all of that into account, particularly for a brand like us. Again, everybody's different in what they, they need and how they need to communicate. Um, so I, we're still a retailer, and we still need people to come into our, our restaurants and, and, and buy our food. So it's aware, and we don't need awareness, but we need relevance. So we're looking at those opportunities that will help drive relevance to the particular audiences and the demos that we're talking to. So let's play right off of that. The Again, very big picture question, but talk a little bit about the role sponsorships and experiential play here in the marketing mix. So you know, I think from a, from a global and, and national standpoint, we're looking at uh, breaking through clutter, uh, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, looking at some credibility plays, and then just a relevance play. Um, those are what we're using the broad properties to talk to consumers that we're doing things that are relevant to their life and, and important to their life. Um, and then when it gets down to the local level, it is about transactional basis. How are we reaching that core fan and giving them something that can... We, 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 we uh, provide a unique opportunity with you know 15,000 restaurants in the United States. So 26 million people a day come into our restaurants in the United States. We've got the opportunity to get those fans who don't necessarily have the opportunity to go to the stadium because there's a limited number of seats there. So how do you engage them and make them feel part of, uh, of their support of their team? And I think we're uniquely uh, positioned to do that in the local level, so that's more of how, how we will look at things on the local level, how we can target that relevance of the real fan in the marketplace. And then on the broader level, level it's, it's really about you know, a relevant play to what are the passion plays for consumers today. And uh, I'll, I'll tie in, you know, again, I'd be remiss if I didn't, at McDonald's, I'd tie in the charity aspect of it as sure. well. You know, those are the things that are important. It's been important to our system and our company for you know, m almost 40 years now, 50 years. Um, the aspect of it's relevant to consumers as well. And so that play and how does that work into the aspect of what are you doing as a good corporate citizen? And that's a that's a, a big opportunity uh, that we continue to, to push forward with. And talk a little bit about the mechanics of the decision-making process in the sense that you've got a budget that you manage here out of corporate for national slash global partnerships. And there is a separate budget at the field level that is uh, managed on a market by market basis. Can you talk a little bit for our listeners about that? Just the mechanic, you know, without going into too much detail. Yeah, no, no, no worries. It's a, again, you hit it on the uh, on the head. It's it's a national or, or global platform that we push out uh, from here, and we work on those budgets and, and those properties, and then we develop programs around those that will will go out nationally. But then in a local market, we've got 186 co-ops around the country. They have everything from you know the Norfolk Mets up to the you know the Chicago uh, bears and Blackhawks and Bulls. So, the that but that's their funding model. They do that individually. I, I help them in a lot of the markets to put those together. But it's really more, as like I said, it's more tra transactional and and focused on the fan in those marketplaces in order for us to help them get the experience that they may not be able to get. Um, in, in, in some aspect. And at the local market co-op level, and I know this varies company to company, but some companies out of their corporate HQ take a very hands-on approach to uh, monitoring, if not 
filtering what is happening at the local level to ensure continuity? Do the co-ops have a fair degree of autonomy in their spending, or do they, uh, by by structure, have to filter those decisions through you, or how does that all come together? Yeah, no, it's uh, great as a franchise system that, uh, you know, at participating uh, franchisees, <laughs> you know, they have they have a lot of autonomy. Um, there are there are what we call the golden golden arches code. There are rules and regulations, I guess you will, about the brand and how you use the brand. But the programs that they put in place and how it's relevant to their marketplace is truly up to them and, and how they see fit to, to make it work in their marketplace. Now, when you build something out from the national or even international type of a perspective, like the Olympics, how do you have to create what I would call the you know the event in a box? But I mean, it's more than that. Is there a kit that then goes out to the regional folks? I mean, and how much has to be built to say you know? I mean, there's obviously guidelines on how you can and can't use a sponsorship specifically. But I mean, here's the kit of marketing materials and promotional ideas and all those things, and it has to you know it should fall into that bucket or how, how does that come down to the field level from a from a huge deal like the olympics yeah from a from a global or national level you know a lot of it will be, will push out so we think about national first with whether it be the nfl or um or whatever that we push in and put in our restaurant they a national program that all restaurants participate in so it's pushed out nationally and everybody advertising's done nationally and uh, and all the, the the look and feel any pop and any any type of engagement is done nationally um, on a global level a little different we're dealing with 120 countries versus one um, so we create the template we create the programming and and to, to use an overused uh, marketing term call it freedom within a framework um, where you know we provide the framework of the the assets and then there there are cultural and unique country aspects that they have freedom to to communicate it um, maybe still the same program so as an example coming out of the Olympics in in Rio we did a, a global kids program where they uh, you know had an opportunity to go down the games and walk in the opening ceremonies so we we created that. We developed the, all the aspects of it, all the assets to it, and then we pushed it out to the country and gave them the freedom of how they were going to select the kids. We gave them a bunch of different templates, but if none of those templates worked, then they could then go off and, and create their own way to how to select kids. And it, it all falls into rules and regulations by sweepstakes yeah. and different opportunities. So they need to have that ability to do that. So we provide that 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 overarching uh, end game, and then they, they they provide the juice to get to it. Do those countries opt in on a country by country basis? They do. Yeah, absolutely. So they they opt in to participate in in multiple different ways. That we had, you know, we provide an asset kit, a look and feel uh, of the games, and some may only do that. Some may just to pick up the packaging components. Others will go full bore and do the whole uh, advertising and uh, and program programming to get the uh, select the winners. You can be a property too, right? I mean, you have a lot of leverage. And what I'm getting at that is you've got 15,000 restaurants and tray liners and signage and all those pieces, the 26 million people a day you're talking about. That's a lot of leverage going back to a property, right? That's, hey, this is what you get. And I'm sure you've got many ways that you quantify that to then come back and say, well, you're asking for this, but remember, you're you're getting this in exchange, right? Yeah, you know, and, and it's a great point, and that's why I said it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. if, you know, and, and and we may be, I don't know that we're necessarily unique in that, but it certainly is an advantage that we have, that we have those assets that we can provide and deliver. Um, we're trying to reach the, the, the same customer 
customer. We're trying to be be relevant to the same customer so we can provide that opportunity. So that does give us a, a, an advantage. Um, and to the, the fact of our own property, whether it's whether it's the restaurants or, or the, the number of people we go in, how many people look at us, uh, you know, through our different social channels. Um, we also have our own event in the McDonald's All-American Game, which will be here in Chicago next week if you want to buy tickets for it. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but we'll, you know, that's a, that's again, something that outside of the sports realm, but obviously in the sports realm, this is a, a piece of history that we've had. This will be the 41st anniversary of the game. And, you know, it's, it's now become vernacular. So it's, you know, just last week uh, I was watching, or this weekend watching uh, uh, one of the games, NCAA games, and they talked about how Kentucky had five McDonald's All-Americans and uh, the other team had none. Um, so it's become vernacular as to who is going to succeed in the NCAA tournament based on their former McDonald's All-Americans. And the, the litany of players who've gone through there is incredible. So building on that as well as uh, also then taking and looking at the, the, the certainly the professional properties, but this is kind of well, right. one it is us. It's ubiquitous, and it's at a level of way beyond. There's been multiple different organizations and brands that have tried to replicate that and haven't found the <laughs> secret sauce. Yeah, uh, no pun intended. See but what you did there. Yeah, yeah. like that. But uh, you know, it's interesting too, and I think that that's a perfect case study of it. Is you talked about the community aspect and that the tie to, to Ronald McDonald House is very deep, and I think very authentic. Like the kids' visits to RMHCs, that that. Uh, uh, Eric Schmidt was talking that he went in and interviewed, you know, past uh, for PC was working on and interviewed past players, and that's not as much the. I mean, the game is awesome and all the all the stuff that goes with it, but something that made such an impact that these these guys and then they go off into their NBA cities and become tied and contributors, both not just monetarily but come and do events and things. Right? I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's you know, authentic, right? It, it, to use it, another buzzword. And and again, you, we've had over uh, I think over six hundred and fifty men go through this, and now we're approaching you know a couple hundred women. Um, the the certainly the 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 joy of it is to see someone who goes out in their community and and we don't do it um, we we do it to certainly to benefit RMHC and create the work but they're at this the precipice of you know this this age to where they're going to be incredibly they're going to be successful regardless but you know at what level and educating them on you have this ability, you have this talent, you have this, uh, uh, you know, this star power, use it to give back. And so, and, and it's fascinating and, and rewarding to see those players who've taken that message without any fanfare and just go do it. Right. Uh, and that's the unique thing. It's, it's uh, you know, I'll use Shane Battier as an example. You know, never, never PR, nothing about it, but every year would go to the Ronald McDonald House and bring turkeys, turkey dinner in for uh, down in, when it was playing down in Carolina. So these are the stories, and they continue to do it. Right. Um, those are, and, the, the, and they don't want the public. It's not about being paid. It's not about being. It's just that they, they touch somebody. And, you know, you're not going to touch everybody, and we shouldn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it, you know, you, those that you do have an impact with and, they, and, and it does uh, impact their life, that's, that's the goal of it. Now, so coming kind of around back to earlier, we touched a little bit on social and digital. And that's something that's dramatically changed. We were just talking about it again before we flipped mm -hmm. the mics on, of how things have changed just in the last few years. 
you know, that's something that's probably been a steep learning curve here and for you in particular yeah, being an old guy. Being right? an old guy, yeah. So, I mean, like, how, <laughs> how has that changed the game and how have you tried to keep up with that? And how do you use it to amplify the impact of your right, sponsors? Right, right. How do you now fold it in? So I'm going to tell you a quick story and just show you how, you know, my prowess in this area. <laughs> um, in 2009, going into... Um, the 2010 Olympics, and we were involved with, uh, obviously, with the Olympics and with USA Hockey. And I was at a USA Hockey Summit, and so we were talking about, you know, the property and what we're and things we're going to do with it. And then someone asked the question at the end, you know, it's a group of us sitting there, the summit, saying, "All right, so what what's happening now that won't be here in a year or two? And so people are going around, you know, and they're talking specifically about, you know, some things with the sport and, you know, rules and regulation. And, of course, the genius that I am, um, you know, I said, Twitter. <laughs> the great prognosticator. The great, great prognosticator. And, uh, you know, it just, I couldn't wrap, at that time, I couldn't wrap my head around why anyone would be interested in seeing what someone was thinking. Right. You know, for, and, and, and or seeing someone else's, basically, email string uh, to comment. I, uh, quite honestly, I still don't, <laughs> but right. uh, apparently our president does. Um, so, uh, it, it's fascinating to me. So, again, so, so, so I, 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 I use that as a setup that I am not a, a social media maven by any stretch of the imagination, but you know I've had to had to had to had to learn it, had to get get involved and understand because it is changing. It's changing the landscape um, of how we get involved in things. But we're we have to be there. We, you know everybody has to be there. So we, we we have to build these 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 social networks out. We have to communicate to people because that's where they are. It's you know the old axiom: fish where the fish are. Um, we have to be relevant. We we have to talk to people. It, it's engaged and it's getting broader and broader into every aspect of what I do, and certainly uh, on the sports front. But we're now at that po pivotal point to where it's got to start bringing it back to okay, we've got it. That's great. We're doing it. We're tying into. But how's it then translating to business? Right. And how's it bringing people back into our restaurants? So, and that I think is a challenge for the next, you know, the next uh, next several months or, or or years to figure that piece out and make sure that it continues. On that that path of, of 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 reason, I guess. Let's talk about a little nuanced aspect of that, in the sense that uh, McDonald's has historically had great relationships with some tier one professional athletes, and historically, in the old days of sports marketing, when you do an athlete deal, you've got to then spend follow up money to talk about that athlete deal, right? In in traditional media, broadcast, creative, whatever it may be, right? Athletes are now communications channels unto themselves, given the millions of social media followers that they have. Has that changed how you look at athlete deals, how you negotiate athlete deals, how you manage athlete deals? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it becomes part of it. It's 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 a function of that you have to include that into uh, into the aspect of the of, of the relationship. In fact, we have uh, soul. I mean, deals that are solely uh, around social. Uh, it's not doing any creative, not doing any radio. It's just socially, it's just a, a, a solely a social um, relationship with athletes, celebrities, influencers. You know, um, so yeah, it's it's got a big impact. Now, that being said, I know there there certainly is an, a, a broad aspect of of people who follow people and will do things that people say. Um, hmm. You know, we again, that's still a 
platform that you now have to figure out how to translate it back into business for you and why you're involved in it. Just because someone talks about you, you know, what's what's the end result? Um, and what do you want? And so we're still figuring that out. I think everybody is. So what do we want to accomplish when we have someone talk about us? What is our what is the desired outcome of that? And you know, part of it is just about talking about us, but you know, ultimately it's got to lead to driving driving well business. like you said i mean everybody the, the awareness of the the arches and mcdonald's brand and name it's it's there right i mean obviously with us all in chicago we see the media coverage of quarterly numbers and everything same same restaurant sales and all those things it's a lot of pressure on those and so trying to figure that stuff out does that add uh, i'm assuming as wearing kind of an agency hat does that bring more agency folks into the mix that you work with now you've got a digital social agency or do you are you charging either internal folks and or an existing agency to help you make that happen yeah it's it's changed our business over the last several years to where we have a uh, I think everybody we've got an expansive what I would call a social digital team here um, obviously the agency side is 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 geared up to that as well uh, I think as you look at just how you communicate in in traditional media and non-traditional media, the mix of that and what what we're doing and how you're moving things off, you know, traditional uh, channels versus non-traditional channels and what's that mix. But now's the again, I think we're coming to that tipping point of we've got that balancing mix. Has anyone been looking at it to see if it's effective? So and and now that's that that's the next phase to start digging. Okay, we all bought this, um, and we we had this aspect, but. Now what are we doing, and is it really really doing something for us? So we've put these resources into this aspect, so now where do we go? And I'll bring this full circle to make sure this thread stays woven in throughout this conversation, which is it all goes back to objectives, right? Yeah. We talked about how a successful negotiation with a property starts with a commitment bilaterally to understanding objectives and delivering on objectives, and the same thing can be said for how we use each of the activation channels that we implement in right. support of a sponsorship, right? For sure. How how Absolutely. long do you, or how often do you set, you know, a, a timetable on? I've got to, you know, reevaluate once a quarter, once a year, once a whatever, you know, kind of a of a thing to make sure that. Yeah, I think I think from our from from my perspective and what I do, we look at everything on a year over year basis, mm -hmm. and we we don't do long term agreements. Um, you know, three years is about the length of time that we will do an agreement because our business will change, as will the property's business will change. So we have to have that flexibility. And, and not to say inside of three years I haven't we haven't reevaluated and, and looked at it because we have to be able to be adjust be adjustable and, and change the course of something that's not working. Can't just continue to do it or not do it if you're involved. So find a different way. And so we always have a uh, with all the properties we always have a debrief after everything after every year everything made your program that we've done with them to see what worked, what didn't work, and what we need to do differently, and how the assets that we may be involved in should change or be adjusted. So yeah, absolutely. Do you have a dedicated measurement budget in support of your sponsorship spend? Uh, you know, it's uh, no. It's we we we're part of. We have a whole um, business research group that we're just we just fall into, and we 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 look at the different projects. There, you we know it's coming, so it's it's in there. It's not a dollar amount that says you've got this much. It's, we just know what we need to do, and sometimes we don't do it. I mean, we'll we'll come out of something and say, you know what, we've got enough anecdotal that we don't need to go through a research project for that, but. Uh, we do so it's not dedicated I'd say 
do you see that remaining consistent in terms of a, an approach to how you measure sponsorships, or do you see that evolving and more of a dedicated, you know, kind of budget and focus on the on the back end measurement? Or? Yeah, I think it's I think it'll evolve. Um, you know, I, we've been involved in the sponsors landscape for a long time. That you know. There's very little that surprises us that comes out of it, so it'll evolve in the new aspects of what we want to focus on. So, and again, that goes back to the social and digital, uh, and looking at those things, and then uh, consumer behavior. So, those how they're engaging, those type of models will 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 evolve to help us. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? It's not just about a communication platform, and did we reach people? And that's a good spot for us to take a break, ending part one of our painless brand cast with John Lewicki. Please head on over to uh, your iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to to us today and uh, download and listen to part two for some do's and don'ts and boosting crew morale at the Super Bowl and Olympics and things like ownable assets such as next week's McDonald's High School All-American game. And uh, please also, as you you check them out, uh, check out the rest of the episodes that we've already had up. There's there's six others that I'm very proud of on the Painless Podcast with uh, Nancy Armour from USA Today, Cara Bachman from Chicago Sports Commission, CSN Chicago's TK Gore, the CEO of Spikeball, Chris Reuter, who's a great guest, uh, BTN Stephen Bardo, with some uh, great insights and uh, the most recent one uh, with the folks at Rich Harvest Farms and the upcoming NCAA Golf Championships. Please check those out, review them, rate them, subscribe. Much appreciated. And until next time, which is hopefully part two, for Kevin Adler, this is Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends.